Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Senator Sidney Batch, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. It's great to be with you today as well. Thanks for the invite. So I got to start. We are talking on April 5th, the night after the national championship game. You have three degrees from the University of North Carolina. They made a remarkable Cinderella run. Can you talk a little bit about how your state is doing today? Yeah, we're surviving as a triple tar heel to the university that has all of my love and all of my money. Last night was tough loss, but I will say that the upside as a Carolina fan is that with a Coach K's last two games, no offense to him in his storied career, and it's been amazing, but it's really nice to go out on a high end as a tar heel to take Duke out in both the ways that we did in his last home game in Cameron Stadium and then subsequently in the actual tournament. So you know, it's bittersweet, but it was a really, really phenomenal run. Well, I think we were all cheering for you because it was such an amazing scrappy team that came out of nowhere, really, and made history and certainly won you a lot of in-state bragging rights, that's for sure, going well into the future. I'm sure you're going to enjoy that in the legislature for the next year. That I will. I'll be like, and we need more funding, General Assembly, <laughs> just so you know. So let's move from Tar Heel basketball to the Tar Heel State and hear how's North Carolina doing as we hopefully emerge from COVID, as we manage global crises and everything else that's going on. Tell our listeners, how are things going in your state? Yes, I think we have been very fortunate to have a governor who listened to the science and got smartest people in the room around the COVID struggles that all of us have gone through over the last two years. And in particular, he had a really measured approach to reopening, right? Closing when we needed to, reopening and doing it in a smart way. And so North Carolina actually had some of the lowest number of loss of life due to COVID. And then also our economy did quite well. And we had one of the best economies that bounced back very quickly. So I think that his approach to COVID and how we were able to you know, weather this storm in unprecedented times has been really great. Um, so the economy is doing really well. We're very fortunate in that regard. That doesn't mean that working families don't still feel it, right? I mean, we have a lot of companies who are moving to North Carolina. We think because of the wonderful topography and great place to live, right? I mean, you got the beaches, you got the mountains, you got Piedmont, and you have a really great temperate climate and really great place to raise kids. And so I think we have a lot of businesses that are coming, but we still have a lot of challenges, right? We still are one of the few states that have an expanded Medicaid. So there are over 600,000 North Carolinians that are fall within the coverage gap and don't have health care. So while parts of our society are thriving, we still have a lot of places, especially in rural North Carolina, where jobs are leaving, where people don't have access to health care, 
And it's been really difficult for them after the pandemic to recover and to, to get back into employment. Yeah, I, mean, I was looking at a graphic the other day of where the Californians were leaving to, and there was a direct line to North Carolina. Can you talk about how you balance managing towards that growth with the existing challenges you have? And, you know, in many ways, North Carolina is a bellwether for many of the other broader issues that are facing our country. And so it's good for us to know how, where the opportunities and where the challenges lie. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that you say that because my brother and sister-in-law just moved from California during COVID to North Carolina back home, and they've been there for over a decade, right? And so there are a lot of advantages that come with trying to move here, and, and we certainly are a bellwether. I think part of why people love North Carolina and want to move back is that, you know, we while we don't have the lowest taxes in the country, we definitely have lower taxes um, as compared to California and whatnot. But we also have the ability to really have a lot of a wonderful economic development and partnerships with regards to what we're doing on the state level and the local level. I think the rural parts of North Carolina are really actually struggling much more so um, because we do see, right, the jobs are leaving there. It's harder to try and, and recruit in some areas that don't have the ability to have a Wegmans, right? I mean, we have Wegmans in my area. And so a lot of people are moving, the Californians are moving to areas like mine. But with that comes a ridiculous amount of growth. So just in the last year, I've had 12,000 people in my Senate district, new registrants to vote, which is crazy because most of the Senate districts are like, oh, it's a thousand, uh, you know, or 6,000. I mean, we are doubling and tripling the rate at which people are moving to this area. So what comes with that are the challenges of the increase in housing, right? And the difficulty of working and middle-class families being able to afford housing. So in my town, the average cost of housing is $425,000 from last year. And housing prices are just really, like they're just astronomically high. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult to get into home ownership. So it's hard to look at the teacher or the firefighter or the policeman or, the, or you know, frankly, you know, the barista at Starbucks and say, one day you'll be able to get into home ownership making $15 an hour at Starbucks with all the benefits in the world, but you're not going to be able to buy a $425,000 home. So we have to deal with, some of the frustrations of some of the locals, and I actually have a purple district, so I have rural and suburban, and a lot of rural North Carolinians who've lived in this area for a really long time don't really like all the changes, right? Too much, too fast. All those Californians are coming in and driving up our prices because they can sell their 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 900 square foot condo for two million dollars and come here and then price the market out, right? So. That's one of the challenges. And the other is just infrastructure, right? I mean, how do we build schools fast enough? How do we figure out the traffic and issues with regards to infrastructure? And I think that is how it's a chicken and egg situation, but we sometimes get over our skis by growing so quickly and not really looking at long-term, how's it going to be for the quality of life of people? You know, it's great to be able to go to downtown Raleigh in 25 minutes from where I live, but if traffic becomes even worse, you can't get to the Capitol in an hour or 20 or, you know, an hour or so. We don't want to become Atlanta. And I think that that's one of the issues, right? When you're growing a metropolis, you don't want to actually increase the, the growth doesn't need to outpace the quality of life at the same time. And I think sometimes we have a hard time trying to manage those two challenges. So you're in a purple district in a purple state, and you're trying to manage these challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing on the ground in terms of how policies are resonating or not resonating with both. I think it was smart, as you pointed out, there's sort of a cultural change and an economic change, and they are 
occurring at the same time, but they're different and people have a response. So what's the Democratic brand in North Carolina right now? (laughs) The Democratic brand. You know, I think that it is much more of we, what I would say and what I would hope we were telling people is, is, you know, rising, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So if you work with and you help the middle class, everyone will benefit from that. That isn't necessarily happening because we have a Republican-led majority in the legislature with a Democratic governor. So a lot of it gets back into he vetoes we have to sustain. We feel like it's a right of legislation to sustain. And so we can stop really bad legislation from happening, but we can't make the progress we need in those areas in particular. And some of the challenges in my district being a purple district, it is really a microcosm of the rest of the state in that we have a lot of, unlike rural North Carolina, we have a lot of businesses and industry, including biotech, coming actually to the town that I live in, in Holly Springs. And it's like the second, I think, right now area for biotech to, to come. Well, that comes with a very different person, right? And voter and entire different group of challenges. When you're talking about rural North Carolina, we've been here for forever and this isn't this isn't necessarily less. So you definitely have some of those aspects. But I think that the bigger challenge for Democrats in trying to win in North Carolina is that there is a rural urban divide. And so when the average you know, median income in my district is probably eighty dollars to $100,000, right? And most people have access to healthcare. Talking about Medicaid expansion doesn't really resonate with voters, right? So if we run as Democrat on a, on a federal level, right, on the statewide issues, you're not actually speaking to your constituents. And I think that's what we don't do as Democrats really well. We need to actually talk to them about our own constituents. That's why, we, that's why you're actually a senator in the district and not obviously the governor. The governor has to worry about the entire state. We have to worry about our constituents. And I think for me in my district, talking about the increase of, of housing prices is a huge issue, right? Talking about infrastructure and the rapid growth and the increased traffic without an actual master plan of what we're going to do with mass transit as time grows, goes on and we grow rapidly. So 1991, the town I live in had like 1,000 people. Now it's 42,000, wow. right? You can't keep up with that pace without actually having a long-term plan. And you can't expect just the towns to be able to bear some of those costs. So it's going to be really important for us to work at the state level to make sure that the infrastructure is there and that we have the partnerships at the federal and state level to help with regards to that and to help the towns out in that regard. So, you know, rural North Carolina and the messaging there is very different. And I think that we just get caught up as Democrats in so much wordiness and being you know, like, oh, let's talk about the ethereal ideal of things. I'm like, no, we're talking about what do people care about every single day when they go to work? And what they care about is driving and sitting in traffic for 45 minutes, trying to get to carpool and get the kids out of carpool because now all of a sudden 10,000 people just moved in and you actually on one road that goes in and out and it's only two lanes, right? Like who thought about that idea and whatnot? So I think that those are some of the challenges um, that we face. Paid leave, for instance, is another North Carolina, only 12% of North Carolinians have paid leave. And I think that that's something that we should be talking about because you might have access to healthcare, but what's the point of having access to healthcare if you can't take a day off to use it, right? I mean, if you can't afford to just go to the doctor, then it's great that you have it in catastrophic situations, but a lot of people are underutilizing the ability to go to the doctor just because they don't have time off. So I think that those are some of the issues that we really need to focus on as a democratic brand in North Carolina is that because we're a purple state, because we're very rural and very urban and very divided, you have to actually focus on the specific area and to run in your district 
and talk about the issues that your constituents actually care about instead of trying to feed people a message that doesn't resonate with them. And how in that environment do you move a legislative agenda forward? And how do you decide what are going to be your priorities going into a, into a session? Yeah. So for me, and this is how I feel like there's two types of legislators or maybe politicians, and they're the peacocks and the peahens. The peacocks want all the attention and they want to let you know that they came up with the ideas and they'll strut around and they'll talk about how wonderful they are. And then the peahens, they're just working behind the scenes, trying to get things done. They don't really need to take the credit. They just want things to be done. No bias to men, but most women are peahens, legislators and politicians. We're not really worried about taking the credit. I think sometimes we need to step forward and actually claim it. But with that being said, I think that if you're in a purple district like mine, and you care about the legislation and you care about affecting change in people's lives, you have to get out of your own way and know that you're not always the best messenger. So this year in the legislature, for instance, I had two really important pieces of legislation. One that was an omnibus bill on child welfare. I'm a child welfare attorney. And so dealing with kids in foster care and expediting permanency and working with families to try and unify them, et cetera. And that bill I filed. And then the Republicans were like, well, you're in a district that we are actually going to be playing in. So we're not going to let you pass it. But they gave it to another Republican. And I worked with the Republican colleague who ended up taking my bill and then ran it. And I, behind the scenes, worked on all the changes and approved it or didn't approve it. And we were able to get that legislation passed. My name's not on that bill. Clearly, it is my bill. It's the language that I wrote, but it got passed. And I just think that we have to remember that if you're going into public service and you're going into it with the idea, if you're doing it the right way and you're in it for the right reasons, you just have to figure out who the messenger is. And that just because your name isn't on the bill doesn't mean that you can't do really great things, even in a minority and serving in a minority. And another example is a mental health regulation bill that I actually got through as well. Republicans took it, put it in another bill, an agency bill, and passed it. But again, you can take your ball and go home, but you're not going to be very effective that way. That's remarkable. I think in the 100 plus episodes we've had of this podcast, I haven't had somebody so succinctly explain that part of the legislative process, which is, I mean, it's hard to hear because you're doing the work and someone else is getting the credit. But on the other hand, as you said, you're making lives better for a lot of people, especially people who are particularly vulnerable in the system. And so it's worth checking your ego at the door, then going back to the to the right. That's really good. I give you all of my good ideas. You run with my bills and you take credit for it. You would think you want to keep me around because if I'm not in the building, where are the ideas going to come from? But it really is like all joking aside. I think it's hard. The longer people are in that building and I feel like the more that their personalities become the their actual position, the less likely they are to be team players or to just realize that you're not always the best messenger, right? doesn't matter if you're in power or not. You have to try and figure out really creative ways to make an effective change. And that's just what I've decided to do. But I have a really fulfilling life. Politics went away tomorrow. I'd be perfectly fine. I would live my best life. I would go on vacations and not have to check my legislative schedule. And my kids and my husband would see me a lot more. So, you know, you have a fulfilling life outside. I think that's the key to a successful politician. If you could go back to your life when it all went away and be happy, then you're actually the best person to be in politics because it doesn't become your life. I love that. And as someone who's leaving politics voluntarily in eight months. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I am looking forward to that, to testing that theory. I'm pretty sure I'm going to, it's maybe the one area where I, I should really succeed. 
Can you talk about, I mean, you've, so not only, as you mentioned, you have a family, you have a thriving law practice, you're in the legislature fighting the good fight, and you've also been going through health challenges at the same time. Can you talk about how you have managed that and why you felt it was important to continue to show up to cast votes, even when you were facing really significant health challenges in your life? Yeah. I feel like, so for a type A personality like myself, who already knew how many children she was going to have and what their names were going to be before I even had a husband picked up, my life has proven that life is all about how you handle plan B because my life is plan B, right? Like I had a trajectory, I knew exactly what I was going to do, and then life left and I got something for you. And it happens all the time. So I think that it's been really great life lessons in 18, actually, when I was running for the first time in the North Carolina House, first time candidate. Um, in August of that election year, I was diagnosed with breast cancer at 39. Did not expect that. Everybody thought that I'd probably drop out of the race. Uh, fortunately, I was diagnosed early and with stage one. So I knew that I could, you know, I get my mastectomy. I took some weeks off, had really great support around me with regards to my family and my husband and um, campaign team. Um, that kept the campaign going for three weeks, but I took three weeks off and hit the ground running and finished up. And then unfortunately in May, I won in November, May of 2019, I actually ended up having to have second mastectomy. And that was harder because I was actually serving, right? So you're campaigning, you're serving, and you are still dealing with the stressors of, I thought that I was, I was done and well, I, I was not. And so through that process, it was a lot harder because unfortunately leadership in the North Carolina house ended up finding out that I was actually out on medical leave for my second mastectomy. And so they decided to try and uh, run an override vote, knowing that I wouldn't be there. And they had the margin for a anti-choice bill with regards to abortion. So I'm hard-headed with nothing else and determined. So I went in about two weeks after my little, actually less than two weeks after my mastectomy and thwarted their plans to override a veto for choice or anti-choice bill that would have absolutely passed had I not been there because they had the votes. So I learned very early on, and I mean, it was worth me going through the sacrifice and the discomfort of coming into session. My husband was furious with me, as you can probably imagine. (laughs) He was like, I think this is a very bad choice, but I really just could not allow for horrible legislation that would really limit the choices that women have in the state of North Carolina with regards to choice um, and reproductive freedom to just stay at home. So I took one for the team, but it was absolutely worth it. I don't regret it. And since that time, I actually just had another surgery, neck surgery three weeks ago for some significant issues with regards to discs and whatnot. So I'm now recovering from that surgery in a lovely spinal fusion. And I say I'm bionic now um, in many ways, but it is challenging because my kids are young and I'm self-employed, right? I mean, the great part about being self-employed is that my husband says your day can't be that bad because you didn't get fired. I mean, he is right. I cannot be fired, but there's, there are stressors with regards to being the boss and still having to cut checks and make payroll for all of my staff that we're responsible for. So I think through a whole bunch of determination and frankly, perspective, like the one thing that I say about me being diagnosed at 39 with breast cancer is that I use that as the barometer for everything. I'm like, is it that bad? Is it cancer? No. Okay. Let's move on. Right. Like I lost my election in 20 in the house and people are like, you're not really you're not crying. It's like, no, like I cried two good times with cancer and this race does not deserve not a drop of my tears. Right. I mean, and so I think that that perspective really helps drive me. And then I also think about how fortunate I am that I have healthcare 
that I'm self-employed, that I have a huge family support. And there's so many other constituents in North Carolinians that do not have that luxury. And so if I can't make some sacrifices in my own life to go ahead and make sure that their lives are better, then why am I even serving in the first place? And so I really think and draw my energy upon all the other people that don't have that ability um, and luxury and good fortune and frankly, blessing that I have in my life. And so I try and pay it forward in that way. Wow. I just cannot imagine <laughs> the last couple of years. Right. And this is also in the context of threats to our democracy, a global pandemic and economic disruption, like everything melting down all around us. And you're managing just an incredible load in your life and for your community. Where, talk about your path into public service. Where did this desire to serve come from and what made you decide to that running for office was a way to best serve your community? Yeah, that's a great question. I think mine is a very non-traditional entry and much probably more traditional now than the old, you know, political way of people getting in politics, starting out early in the party, volunteering, knowing that you want to be governor one day. So you work your way up from, you know, county commissioner to the general legislature to, you know, statewide office. I was living my best life. Four years ago, it seems much longer than that. But in 18, I was living my best life, not even thinking about running for office. And frankly, I was recruited by Emily's List and Emily's List, two organizations that want more representation in women in office. General Assembly is still only a quarter women and a quarter of people of color, being a double minority myself and filling two of those checkboxes and being an attorney in that regard. They said that I had a district in 18, um, was represented by a Republican. It was a district that they certainly were targeting. So they recruited me and I had never thought about running and about running or being in politics in any way, shape or form. But when I started talking to them about, they asked me what I was passionate about and what I cared about. And I really started thinking about the fact that, you know, at this point now, 17 years into practicing law and representing families and children, there are, a, and I'm a social worker as well, right? So I already had a servant's heart in the fact that I actually am a social worker <laughs> says a lot about the fact that I actually want to work with and help, especially underserved communities. But in doing that within my law firm and as a social worker, what I realized is that there's so many other families and policies that uh, families that were being hurt by policies at the state level with very little knowledge from individuals that were within the building and serving in that capacity who understood what would actually be beneficial. So after looking at contemplating a lot about running, I finally decided to do it. We know that women have to be usually asked seven times to run. I was actually asked when my kids were one in three. And I laughed and I said, my kids are one in three. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> but in 18, they were five and seven. And my five-year-old was going to kindergarten. And so it was much more manageable and an ability for us to think about it. And I did give some consideration to the fact that at the time in which I had started serving in 19 and January of 2019, I was one of four women who had school-aged children in the house, 120 members. And I was one of four, right? So if you don't have anyone that looks like you, you don't have anyone that has any type of life experience, like even lived experience is extremely important because it will bring a very different perspective to what you see and how you perceive and view legislation. Then we're never going to have a representative society. And I think that government needs to look like the people it serves. And so I checked off a lot of boxes and was really passionate about helping. And I felt like instead of trying to save one family at a time in a courtroom, I could actually pass legislation that would actually change the lives of millions and thousands of families at once. And so that's why I finally decided to throw my hat in the ring and, and run for office. Can I ask, because you're talking about, it's so, you're right, it's so important to have, bring the many perspectives and life experiences that you're bringing and others bring into the legislative process. But when there are so few 
people in the legislature who have your life experience, does it get tiring having to explain what it is to be a woman of color, what it is to be a mom and trying to get your kids to school on time, you know, in all these debates, hard enough to just keep things going on a day-to-day basis, but then to have to explain it must be a double burden. Can you talk about how you find the energy to keep the conversation, your perspective in the conversation, you know, in the legislative process? Yeah, it's funny you, you say that, especially with regards to the kids' perspective, because I had the very good fortune of one of my best friends who's now in the, uh, who is one and now my best friends in the General Assembly. We were in the House and we, and we ran together, we served and we were seatmates, actually Representative Clemens, who's also affiliated with you all. And so she and I had kids, the five of us, or we had five kids who came, she has three kids. Um, and then I have my two at the swearing in ceremony on the first, on the, on the first day of session. And the person who was giving the prayer Literally was like, and God bless all the grandchildren who are here and blah, 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 blah. Like it was no, and God bless the children of any of the representatives because it was so rare, right? Like we wow. were the outliers that you couldn't even fathom. There were other kids in the chamber. They just happened to be a part of all the grandkids um, of, the, of the legislature. And in North Carolina, right, it's set up that way. I mean, it's a part-time legislature and only pays $14,000, but it's part-time, but we were in session all the way from January until November this year. So that's not part-time, but it's set up for, it makes it very difficult. So I think the way that I look at it in my lens is it's really important in those conversations to just be really firm and stand your ground with regards to what you know and what your knowledge base is. So when they talk about childcare and they talk about, well, I don't understand why we want to go ahead and raise the amount of money we pay childcare, you know, childcare, young, early education, early educators, or why do we care about increasing the vouchers for childcare? And we don't really have to worry about how great of an education it is. I can say, like, I understand that you have not had childcare now for 60 years because your children have grandchildren. But let me tell you, since the last time that you actually paid childcare, if you did, because your wife oftentimes was staying at home, it is literally $2,400. I was paying $2,400 for two kids and it's like every single month, which was more than my mortgage. And so being able to actually use that lived experience and share with other legislators what you're going through is really helpful. And that doesn't come, right? Like you can't just come in there and say, oh, let me be a know-it-all. Let me tell you everything. You have to build those relationships. And I think if you build with an effective legislator, you can build authentic relationships across the aisle and with your own colleagues in your party. When you speak up, they look at you different, right? I think it's really hard to hate people up close. And so if you get to know the person that you're talking to, when I say, perhaps we should actually look at what we're paying our childcare workers or whether or not we should increase vouchers, because if someone like me as a lawyer had to not save as much money in a 401k because I was putting $2,500 of my, my husband and I's money into childcare, what do you think that's happening with the barista or with the you know clerk at the grocery store? And they're able to look at me and say, oh, but you're doing really well. And yet you still couldn't save, right? I mean, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to be vulnerable as a legislator to tell those stories. But I think that that's what makes you more effective because you can share that experience and then have somebody second guess whether or not we actually really should reconsider a policy. And then in the child welfare space, because I've done it for so long and I'm a certified child welfare specialist and the only one in in the General Assembly they then look to me for my expertise because they know they don't have it. They know that they want to help. They just don't know how to help. And so it is tiring. Let me be clear. Like it is exhausting. And sometimes like, why am I doing this? Because I can just live my best life 
at my firm and literally just do what I want. Um, but that doesn't help anybody who actually needs to obviously have a voice there who's going to fight for them. And so, and it's important to just be in the room, right? Decisions are being made about other people's lives that look like me, but they don't have a voice in the building. And so I have the good fortune of being able to do it. And then I think it's imperative that we speak up for those who are not able to. I appreciate you being that voice. I'm tired just listening to you. Uh, <laughs> I'm tired of listening to me too. <laughs> so I hope I hope you uh, can find a little that balance, and I hope other folks are able to get elected and to bring their voices into the system. So it's not it's not all on you and your uh, seatmate there to explain <laughs> childcare in the modern age <laughs> to the government. So I got to say, my last question is one we do with every podcast, and I'm hesitant to ask because I'm a Californian and I don't want to lose any more constituents to North Carolina. But let's say I just had 24 hours to spend in Southern Wake County in your area. What do I do? How do I experience your community in a way that tells the story of why it's a great place to be? Yeah. So we have an amazing open space in parks and rec system here of like no other, right? We have very much from the county level, town level have really invested in a lot of green space. And so for those individuals who like biking, right? And walking on trails and going to 1200 soccer games like I do on Saturdays now <laughs> uh, and having to juggle all of that, you have all of the great parts of um, suburbia. And we frankly are only two hours away from the beach and about three hours away from the mountains, right? And so it's a really great sweet spot with regards to where we are. We have fantastic small businesses. Um, and I feel like the great part is that we are three very small towns, but it, like we have a small town feel, even though they are growing and burgeoning towns of 42,000 plus. But we also have a lot of local businesses. We also have really quaint downtowns. So it hasn't become the big high rises, right? And none of the towns that I represent, you're not going to see high rises. You're going to get that feel that you can still walk to the downtown and go to the local coffee shop or go to the, we have a ton of craft brewers. So, I mean, that's the number one thing that people love is that you can go to multiple craft brewers in my district and just drink your way into oblivion uh, by the end of the day, just by the amount of breweries that we have. And you have those with the food trucks, right? So they always have these events and they always have a lot of community activities and festivals that are even just going down, coming to this area. And so I think the greatest part is that you can raise a family and have amazing schools that are, we have amazing public schools and you can raise your family and do all the wonderful things that you enjoy with great weather without ever having to leave. I just fair warning. I may edit all that out because I think it's just too tempting. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> and lower taxes as compared to California. I can tell right. you, and you're going to pay significantly lower taxes. <laughs> But you're going to live in a purple district if you're coming from California, and that might attract some and deter others. But I need you to move here. Come. Yeah, yeah, you need a few more. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. We want nice things too. So you come, <laughs> and we can all have nice things. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for being part of the New Deal Network. We love having you in the network, and I think it's important that we have you at our tables too, so we can make sure that when the Democrats are out proposing policies, as you say, we're speaking to people's experiences and needs on the ground and helping to serve them better. And congratulations on the uh, Tar Heels run and North Carolina basketball, again, emerging into the national consciousness. Thank you so very much. And thank you guys for what you do and making sure that you can support us because it's not always easy in some of the districts that we serve, but we really 
appreciate it. And I'm speaking on behalf of my fellow colleagues who are in Purple District and serve in legislatures in the minority. It is absolutely essential what you guys do and to bring us together so that we don't feel so alone. So thank you for that as well. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.